0: Hey guys, welcome back this week to a brand new episode of Nutshell Politics. My name is Justin Kinney and I am excited to be here with you guys this week for a really interesting episode. Now I was actually out of town last week, that's why you got a replay episode, but if you haven't listened to it, it was a really good discussion on the Kurds. We kind of did a spotlight episode on who this people group is. It's from uh, several months back, but it was a really good one back at the time. Got a lot of great response and so I did that as a replay episode last week. If you haven't listened to it, go ahead and check that out. Uh, this week, we're kind of shifting gears and jumping to a current event, something that took place about a week or so ago, I believe, maybe a week and a half ago. And it's a, a really interesting topic because it deals with terrorism, but kind of on the the end of terrorism. What do you do with terrorists who have served their prison term? And that's because there was a an American man by the name of John Walker Lind, it's L-I-N-D-H, Uh, He was captured in Afghanistan back in 2001, and ultimately was convicted in U.S. courts of providing support to the Taliban. And so he was convicted and sentenced to a 20-year prison sentence, but actually was released from federal prison, uh, I said, about a week and a half ago, so I think it was a Thursday, after serving 17 of those years. And so this man has become mildly famous as, they they call him the American Taliban, and he was officially released from prison. And so there's a lot of questions about how do you deal with convicted terrorists who are now kind of finishing up their prison sentence, the time that they spent uh, behind bars. And so I want to talk about that this episode. We're going to talk talk about who John Walker Lind is, who he was at the time, and maybe a little bit about kind of what you do going forward with people who were convicted of terrorism or supporting terrorists and how do we handle that from like a justice perspective Uh, but first let's go ahead and dive into who john walker lind is so john walker lind is a 38 year old man he was born in washington dc but ultimately he ended up being captured as an enemy combatant during the u.s invasion of afghanistan now there's a lot of questions here how did he get there why did he go to afghanistan what was he doing? And so to understand that, we're going to take uh, several steps back and talk a little bit about kind of how he grew up. He was actually uh, raised Catholic. Uh, He actually grew up outside of D.C., I should mention, in Silver Spring, Maryland, which if you haven't heard of that, it's a a town kind of in the D.C. metro area. But when he was in high school, he actually went to this a very specific high school in California, I believe it was. It's like an alternative school, and they they have a different kind of method of study programs where it's very individualized. And so he actually studied a lot of world culture, especially focusing on the Middle East. And at the age of 16, he actually begins to... Or I should say he started studying this beforehand, but he actually converts to Sunni Islam. And at the age of 16, he drops out of school. Uh, He eventually earns like a... uh, the equivalent of a GED in California. I think it's like a high school proficiency exam or something to that effect. But he leaves high school at the age of 16 and begins regularly attending uh, mosque services in, in the California area uh, outside San Francisco, more or less. And he actually, a year or so later at the age of 17, travels to Yemen, uh, learns Arabic. He stays there for almost a full year. Uh, his, his ultimate goal is he wants to be able to read the Quran in its own language and he, he spends, as I said, close to a year there. Uh, he does eventually uh, come back, stay in the United States for a little while, but then uh, goes to Yemen again, ends up in Pakistan, and his path here is that he starts training or learning in madrasas. Now, a madrasa, it's M-A-D-R-A-S-A. It's an Arabic word. It's essentially a, a re- educational institution of sorts. Uh, usually, we're talking about religious education, although it doesn't necessarily have to be in, in Arabic, um, but frequently it is. And so he he's studying at a madrasa in Pakistan, and this is where we first start to see some of the hints that he may be going through a radicalization process. He's emailing back and forth with his parents, uh, and in one such email he mentions that the bombing of the USS Cole uh, which if you don't remember that or it was, it was too long ago, this was in 2000. And so he, he actually says that this attack was justified because the, the, the USS Cole and the American naval destroyers in the area being in the Yemen harbor, he considered that an act of war. And so he, this is kind of one of the first clues that his father has that something might be going wrong. But at this point, I, I mean, he's, he's 18, he's over the age of minority, so he's you know a full adult at this point. And his father has very little influence over him as he lives in a full other country, you know halfway around the world. Now at the age of 20, so this is another couple of years later, John Walker Lynn decides to move from Pakistan where he'd been studying in this madrasa, to Afghanistan, and actually starts to fight for the American, uh, sorry, for the Afghan Taliban. Now the argument here that he gives, and he tells his parents this, is that the Northern Alliance fighters, and the Northern Alliance uh, was a kind of a, a military front that had the stated purpose of, of trying to fight a defensive war against the Taliban government. And so he basically says that the Northern Alliance was perpetrating a, a lot of various atrocities against civilians in the area, and there probably is some truth to that. But he basically decides to fight for the Taliban government forces against these Northern Alliance fighters. Now, later, we find out a a few things. While he was in Afghanistan to help aid the Taliban, who at the time were the ruling party in in Afghanistan, they were the government, uh, he trained at al Farouk, which is a a training camp uh, that's been highly associated with al-Qaeda. Let's just say it's alleged training camp. It's outside of Kandahar uh, in Afghanistan, but it's alleged to have been uh, associated with al-Qaeda. And while there, he actually attended a lecture that was given by the infamous Osama bin Laden. And so he start, he's really radicalizing even further under al-Qaeda, the Taliban, bin Laden, all of these, these people and these organizations. And when the 9-11 attacks happen in 2001, he decides to remain there in Afghanistan and, and continue to fight the Northern Alliance, who the U.S. was allied with. Now, in November of 2001, the Northern Alliance forces, these are Afghan forces, capture Lind. Uh, actually, a lot of times in the media, you'll hear him referred to as John Walker, uh, and they'll drop the last one. But uh, but Lind was captured in November of 2001, and he's handed over to the CIA. And so a couple different CIA officers question him. Interestingly, at the time, he didn't tell them that he was an American citizen. in fact, he originally said that he was Irish and there was some question of whether or not he was actually a member of the IRA that was just kind of tentatively allied with other nationalist forces just happened to be in the Middle East. But about this time that they're questioning him, the prison that he's undergoing, uh, it's kind of a makeshift prison, has a violent riot that takes place. Uh, There's a huge uprising. It's called the the Battle of Kala Ijangi, uh, probably butchering that. But a ton of people ended up being killed here. Only 86 prisoners ended up surviving. Hundreds of foreign fighters were killed. One of one of the CIA officers, a man by the name of Johnny Spahn, frequently called Mike, I believe that's from his middle name, he was killed in this uprising and lind ends up getting shot during this now he does and obviously survive he ends up hiding out kind of getting refuge in the basement and he becomes involved in some pretty terrible things that take place uh on the second day of kind of this uprising the red cross goes in to kind of collect the dead and tr- and um tend to any any of the wounded and some of the workers end up getting shot by the prisoners now it's unknown a little bit about who was doing the shooting here but but lind was among some of these d- detainees that were shooting back. Now, eventually, Lind and the other survivors, and I said there were about 86 of them or so uh, out of originally several hundred, but they were forced back out and he was recaptured. Now, eventually, he gets transferred to a place called Camp Rhino. This is a, a U.S. land base established in Afghanistan during this time period. And this is where he ends up being interviewed and questioned further. And it was through this process that his his real name comes out. Uh, It's realized that he's an American, and he eventually goes through a series of transfers, different uh, military ships and things like this. Uh, He ends up signing confession documents while he's being held by the the Marines at one point, and eventually in January of 2002, so just a month or so later, uh, it's announced that he's going to be tried back in the United States. Now, ultimately, in 2002, he gets indicted on 10 different charges. Now, these charges are, you know, conspiracy to murder U.S. citizens, uh, a couple different counts of providing support to terrorist organizations, a couple counts of uh, supplying services, contributing services to various groups, the Taliban, Al Qaeda, etc. And uh, I think one count of like using carrying firearms during violent crimes, something like that. And so these are some pretty serious charges. And Lind could have received up to three different life sentences if convicted of these charges, but he ends up pleading not guilty to almost all of them. Now, ultimately what happens here is that they offer him a plea bargain. And this is uh, from the US DOJ, the Department of Justice. And they offer him a plea bargain because they're a little concerned that lind was going to testify on the stand that he was tortured into into confessing that some of the practices that were used were not 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 torture necessarily in the sense that we tend to think of it but but very coercive tactics that he was under duress and forced to sign this confession and therefore that very key piece of evidence his confession would be excluded from from the trial when they would not be able to present that and so they were very worried that they wouldn't be able to to push on all of these charges they offer this plea bargain and basically he pled guilty ultimately to two charges supplying services to the Taliban and carrying an explosive during the commission of a felony now he did have to do a couple of things here Uh, he was going to be put in prison for 20 years he had to consent to a gag order which basically means that he could not make any public statements during that 20 year period. And he had to drop any sort of claims that he was mistreated by the U.S. military during these um, detainments. And in return, they said they would drop all the other charges. Now, Lind ultimately does accept this offer. Uh, He pleads guilty to those two remaining charges. And so ultimately, he ends up being put in prison for a sentence of 20 years. Now, he becomes eligible for release in 17 years, which just happened recently, based off of good behavior. He agreed to kind of cooperate fully with military intelligence, with law enforcement. And so in sev- the 17-year mark came along, and he was ultimately released, as I said, about a week and a half ago. Now, uh, we're going to talk a little bit more about this on the other side of a break, but we're going to take just a quick commercial break, and I'll be back with you guys in just a minute or so. So stick with me and we will talk more John Walker Lynn's and his release on the other side. Hey guys, we're back. Thanks so much for sticking with the show through that short commercial break. Uh, we're going to go ahead and jump right back into talking about john walker lind Uh, john walker lind as i mentioned previously is known as the american taliban he was a an american citizen who was ultimately caught during the u.s invasion in afghanistan and charged with aiding and abetting basically the taliban al-qaeda al-ansar and basically other terrorists in the area this was basically in the news recently because he was released about a week and a half ago after serving 17 years in prison it's raised a lot of questions about how do we deal with terrorists and their ultimate release after serving their sentence in in jail. Now, John Walker Lind first gets put into a U.S. penitentiary in kind of outside of L.A. It's a high-security facility. He ends up being transferred to Federal Supermax ADX Florence. This is in Florence, Colorado. It's considered one of the uh, most high-secure prisons in the in the country. Actually, it's where you see a lot of spies get held. Robert Hansen is held there right now. Robert Hansen, if you don't know, he's one of the spies that was caught leaking documents to the Soviet Union. He was a member of the FBI. And so he's actually being held currently at the Supermax in Florence, Colorado, and then ultimately ends up being transferred to a federal correction institution in Indiana and so he is held there and that's where he serves out the remainder of his sentence now john walker lind actually makes the news again in 2010 when he and a fellow prisoner a syrian american by the name of Enam arnot again probably butchering that uh but they sued to lift restrictions on group prayer in the prison and a couple years after that gets all the way up the chain and a federal judge rules in their favor saying that you can't restrict religious speech of inmates by uh, prohibiting them from praying together and so basically John Walker Lind and this uh, Syrian American prisoner win a lawsuit allowing them to pray in groups and ultimately he serves out the remaining few years of his sentence and In April of 2019, just a couple months ago, he was, it was announced, I should say, that he would be released from his prison sentence and serve out the last three years, that year 18, 19, and 20, on probation instead of in prison. And so on May 23rd, about a week and a half or so ago, he was released from this Indiana federal prison uh, for good behavior. And now he does still have several probation requirements that he is required to to follow, uh, mostly because... He does not seem to have renounced his extremist ideas. He is still very much indoctrinated into a lot of these beliefs. Uh, It was actually reported at one point that he uh, still supports kind of this radical extremist viewpoint. And so there's a lot of questions here that are being raised as to what do we do with people like this? And so this is kind of where I wanted to go for the rest of the episode, is talk a little bit about how do we deal with administering justice on terrorists, especially as they near the end of their sentences. Now, as I said, Lind has been kind of moving towards radicalization for a long time. Uh, as I said, started kind of at the age of 16 when he converted, but honestly, it goes back even years before that. And so he has this kind of long, long history of becoming involved in some of the radical ideas that you find in a lot of these groups, like the Taliban and Al-Qaeda. Uh, he actually adopts a, a different name, uh, he goes by the name of Suleiman al-Lind or Suleiman al-Faris, starts down kind of a different path where he gets more and more into the extremist branch off of Islam. Uh, in fact, while he is in Pakistan, he joins a group called uh, the Pakistani Harakat ul mujahideen or HUM. This is a group that's often referred to as a terrorist organization. Their whole purpose is taking Kashmir back from India and forming kind of an Islamic state there. And then, as I mentioned earlier, he gets trained at an al-Qaeda training camp. Uh, He crosses the border into Afghanistan to join the Taliban and fight for them. He's actually on the Taliban front lines following the 2001 uh, 9-11 attacks against the United States in New York, D.C., and Pennsylvania. And then ultimately, he's captured. And so this is the point where I think we really need to focus on, from his capture forward, how do we deal with terrorists? He does admit to a lot of these things. He ultimately claims that he'd been subjected to torture during his detention, and this is what led to his confession. But he does ultimately agree to plead guilty to multiple charges. But the big question here is that he appears to be still radicalized. There was an assessment that came out by a group called the National Counterterrorism Center, the NCTC, back in 2017, and they basically claim that he still has very radical beliefs. And in fact, just a year or so before that, he wrote a letter praising ISIS. He claimed that ISIS was, and I'm going to quote him here, very sincere and serious about fulfilling the long neglected religious obligation to establish a caliphate through armed struggle. And this is this correspondence that he had. It was actually sent back and forth between uh, NBC, kind of a, a, an L.A. branch of NBC. And this is becomes a lot of the basis for that NCTC, the National Counterterrorism Center, and their report on him. And so we have a lot of questions here as to how do we deal with a convicted terrorist who has served out their prison sentence, or close to it anyway, and yet still has not renounced those radical beliefs that led him to commit the actions that put him in prison in the first place. Now, as I said, the three years that he now has to spend on, on probation, there are a lot of restrictions here. And I just want to mention them first before we got, kind of dive into the the argument for, for how we deal with these, these people. He was... Uh, Forbidden from holding a passport. I should say he is forbidden from holding holding a passport. He is required to go to regular meetings with a parole officer. He's required to go to mental health counseling. Uh, He is forbidden from using the internet in any sort of unmonitored way. Uh, He's forbidden from using any language online except English without some sort of prior approval. And he is forbidden from communicating with any known, known extremists, as you would probably expect. So he has a lot of restrictions placed on him but he is free from prison and at the end of these three years will be free to go wherever he pleases he actually applied for irish citizenship a handful of years back so he appears to be planning to go to ireland and ireland has said they're not going to deny him entry into their country but basically at the end of these three years he will be free so let's dive into this kind of question about how do we deal with the justice of prisoners who are kind of at the end of their sentence there's been a lot of people who have been very upset that he is being released at all here especially given his uh, refusal to renounce the the radical beliefs that caused him to join the Taliban and join al-qaeda and provide support and things like that and this is where it gets into a, a pretty murky area he was ultimately convicted and put in prison on charges that were not terrorism specific. They dropped the terrorism charges in exchange for a guilty plea. And instead, he got, is it carrying a weapon with a felony and providing material support? So, what do we do with people like this? And this is where I think we really get tested on what the American justice system is about. Because this raises some questions about whether or not you can keep somebody in prison or continue to punish them, as many people have been asking for, for something they have not done yet in the future. We can't go back and add years to a prison sentence, even if, say, the justice system made a mistake early on, gave him too lenient of a sentence, or should have pushed for further charges, not offered a plea deal, any of those things. And so regardless of what you think about that, that initial decision, he has served that time. And any future imprisonment would have to then be based on future actions. And this is where I think you get into a lot of murky area because while there is, I, mean, I believe, righteous anger for releasing a man who is convicted of engaging or engaging with terrorist groups, giving support, etc., we need to be very careful about the way that we approach a situation like this because punishing somebody for things they might do in the future is a road I don't think we want to go down as a country. Now, there are again, very justified concerns here. Uh, there have been a couple, a couple of senators, actually both Republican and Democrat, that argue there are serious security and safety implications for citizens of this country, communities of this country, who John Walker Lind will essentially be walking into, who continues to support, openly support extremist violence, extremist ideologies, radical jihadism, ISIS, groups like this. Uh, And so there are a lot of concerns about freeing an unrepentant terrorist. And again, 100% agree with those concerns. But where we move forward from here is how do law enforcement officials or federal agency officials, federal agents working to keep prisoners like Lind and potentially others down the road from committing additional crimes after their release, especially when we know they are unrepentant or when they continue to express some of these extreme ideologies. There may be other terrorist offenders, uh, terrorist supporters who are kind of next in line who will be freed in recent years so this question of how do we decide whether or not somebody is some sort of ongoing threat is a serious issue and this is why there were so many restrictions placed on him about you know using the internet he needs permission to obtain any sort of device that connected the internet he can't talk online any language other than english without permission uh, barred from having a passport and so these are all efforts by the government to try to control lind and prevent him from ever committing other crimes based on these very similar ideas that he had before that caused him to to commit crimes and that he continues to have and so while we may not like the fact that a convicted unrepentant terrorist is being released when we fear he still harbors these radical beliefs, there's a lot of things here to be concerned about. This is a man who has not given up his his radical ideas. He has not given up his calls for violence. And he is still quite young. As I mentioned, he's only 38. So even by the time his 20-year period with the probation runs out, he'll only be 41. But because we live in a democracy, and I think this is actually a good thing there is nothing that we could do or should do to try to block Lynn from getting out. And this is this is where you're walking a very fine line and I want to be very clear on this. I'm not a fan of his early release. I'm not a fan of the only 20 year sentence. I'm not a fan of the early plea deal that was offered. and I do think some of these these prison system policies should probably be reviewed. Uh, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo uh, came out you know just a couple weeks ago and he called it unexplainable and unconscionable. I think that's a little strong because as I said, you can't go back and change initial convictions. You can't try somebody twice for the same crime. That's called double jeopardy. And so you can only really look going forward, but there are a lot of concerns here and This is going to be a real test of the U.S. counterterrorism policies, FBI, CIA, etc., to determine what risk a prisoner poses when they're released and what they can do to prevent them from committing further acts, especially when they know they're still radicalized. Now, we can look going back. uh, There have been other radicalized inmates, not to the extent of John Walker Lind, but previous radical inmates who have been released, and none of them have returned to federal prison on terrorism-related charges uh, here, again, in the United States. So that's a good thing. We do know, however, there have been terrorists that we have held in custody. I actually did an episode on this a couple weeks ago on al-Baghdadi. He was held in custody for a while, ultimately released, and he now leads ISIS. So we have seen outside the United States, people return to terrorism. And we have seen quite a few, even fighters, from the Taliban who ultimately spent time in Guantanamo Bay, ultimately getting released as well. And so while I do think there are some questions about him being released early for quote good behavior there have been some people actually uh cia agent spawn who i mentioned was murdered in that riot uh, his daughter called lynn's early release a slap in the face to everyone who was killed on 9-11 and in the war on terror and i think that as a very valid thought process and in fact there's a lot of that in that that i agree with but lynn's release is following federal laws it's following federal guidelines And I think if we start going down the road of wondering, of trying to punish people for things they might do in the future, I think that's a very dangerous path to walk and a very slippery slope for us to try to work our way down and to avoid sliding even further down. Uh, I don't think that's a precedent that we really want to set. Now, I'm sure John Walker Lind will be the subject of a lot of speculation and a lot of uh, close eyes over the next few years especially, whether or not he's going to live out his life in peace and quiet somewhere, or if he's going to become a danger to the United States again, and his professed still extremist beliefs may be a huge problem going forward. And so while none of us really know what's going to happen, one thing we can know for certain is that pretty much everybody in the media, as well as especially the US government and various federal law enforcement agencies will be keeping a very close eye on John Walker Lind going forward. And this may hold some interesting precedents as well for future radicals who may be nearing the end of their prison sentences too. Uh, But with that, we're going to go ahead and close out the episode. I hope that was interesting for you guys. Uh, John Walker Lind is a a pretty fascinating figure as an American who is actually one of of the first Americans really to join a Middle Eastern Islamist extremist terrorist group. Uh, As I said, he joined it almost 20 years ago. He was 20 years old when he was captured. And so he was really one of the first to to do this. And so that makes him pretty interesting. Now, if you would like to keep in touch with me or to get in contact with me about something, uh, you can find me on Twitter. My username there is R underscore Kinney. Find me, follow me there. I'd be happy to continue this conversation or any others, but any other topics. Or if you have ideas for future topics for Nutshell Politics, I'd be happy to talk with you about that as well. Now, if you'd rather contact me on Facebook, I have a Facebook page called J. Robert Kinney. That's the name I write fiction mystery novels under. I have two books out now called Precipice and Splintered State, both are available on Amazon, both in paperback and Kindle form. So please go check those out. You can also follow my page on Facebook. And again, contact me there if you'd like to talk about this or anything else. Now, if you'd like to support me or support this podcast in any way, or to advertise on the podcast, please get in contact with me. I would love to talk with you more about that possibility. Uh, But with that, we're going to go ahead and shut things down this week. Thanks so much for tuning in. And until next week, this is Nutshell Politics. My name is Justin Kinney, and I am out in 3, 2, 1. <laughs>